Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to this edition of the Politically Incorrect Podcast. I'm Jim Williams, your host. Now, you know, few people knew who Florida Congresswoman Frederica Wilson was before she and President Trump began a public battle over the now famous conversation the president had with the widow of Sergeant LaDavid Johnson of Miami Gardens, who was among the four U.S. soldiers killed by enemy fire in Niger. But our good friend and outstanding writer Joseph Hammond, who's an investigative reporter for the American Media Institute, spoke with the congresswoman. And she knows a great deal more about terrorism in Niger and throughout Africa. Joseph, why don't you pick up the story from here and give us the details of your fine reporting? Uh, yes, I attended uh, and reported on the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation's uh, annual conference uh, here in D.C. Uh, just a, about a week or so before that uh, attack in uh, Niger, and had the chance to sit down with the congresswoman. And she is really uh, one of the most knowledgeable voices in Congress about uh, Boko Haram and uh, terrorism concerns uh, in, in West Africa. She's very knowledgeable and very passionate about these uh, issues. Uh, she was the Chibok Girls uh, issue, um, which your listeners may recall, which is an incident in which over 200 uh, Nigerian schoolgirls were abducted by Boko Haram. Um, mm-hmm. I think about roughly half of them are still being held uh, hostage um, in some form or another by Boko Haram. And uh, we had a social media campaign. The First Lady supported it, and a number of politicians supported it, uh, hashtag uh, Save Our Girls. And she was part of the the Congresswoman uh, Wilson was one of the first members of Congress to go over there to Nigeria to look into this issue. Uh, Sheila Jackson, another Congresswoman uh, who's a member of the Congressional Black Caucus, uh, Caucus, was also very interested in this issue. While other people have forgotten about this issue, uh, Congresswoman Wilson has been very passionate uh, about solving the Boko Haram challenge. Um, because, you know, not only because of the, the Chibok girls and that very dramatic incident, but, you know, in my discussions with her, she made very clear, you know, up front and center um, that Boko Haram is a security concern uh, from her perspective for the United States. Um, and she told me that because of Boko Haram's increasingly close uh, operations uh, with ISIS, whether that's, you know, weapons training, you know, tr- tr- uh, weapons trade, the trade of intelligence or, or joint operational um, capacity, uh, it's a concern for the United States because she could see that through that, Boko Haram uh, could infiltrate uh, American inner cities uh, and to use her words, I believe, change the trajectory uh, of uh, youth in the inner city um, and, you know, destabilize um, those areas and, you know, potentially create uh, terrorism here in the United States. Mm-hmm. So basically, what um, what Congresswoman uh, Wilson is concerned about is uh, Boko Haram, uh, and stop me if I'm wrong in this regard, using Boko Haram in the inner cities in the United States, much as ISIS has uh, used the um, uh, used 
Islam to co-opt uh, people into self-radicalizing um, themselves. Yes, that's exactly the way that she uh, sees the threat, um, you know, that there could be a potential just as, um, for example, in Europe, uh, that terrorist groups have recruited amongst uh, recent immigrant populations. Mm -hmm. um, you know, she posits that that sort of thing could happen uh, with Boko Haram and in the American inner city. Joseph, um, you know, there's a lot not known about what happened in Niger. Why don't we talk about your trip uh, to Sudan and what you learned about uh, what is going on with U.S. forces in the area? Uh, yes, uh, I was in uh, the Sudan in the last week of uh, September, more or less, mm -hmm. for uh, – a conference known as CISA, which is an annual meeting of the heads of all of the intelligence services uh, in Africa. This year, the CIA attended, as well as uh, French intelligence, as well as Saudi intelligence, um, which mm -hmm. I think reflects a growing concern about uh, terrorism uh, issues in these countries. Since that trip, uh, we've seen um, new terrorism fronts in the war on terror, uh, so to speak, emerge. We've seen uh, ISIS claim expansion into the Congo. We've seen uh, an uprising uh, in Mozambique. Um, and that's something that was very much in, you know, terrorism's growing reach in Africa was something that uh, came up in numerous conversations I had with representatives from the various intelligence services um, that, you know, this is something that we'd seen a lot in West Africa, also with Al-Shabaab, but it's really, you know, moving south into areas that really haven't seen, you know, terrorist attacks uh, before. Uh, I think that's best highlighted uh, by what happened in, in Mozambique, where there was a, um, a group, an effort by a terrorist group to take over a village. Um, so this is definitely an issue uh, that, you know, African intelligence services um, are taking an issue in. And, you know, the conference that I went to is very important because in the past, state security services and intelligence services in Africa, um, you know, since many countries in Africa in particular are not democracies, have been mm -hmm. focused on internal security and cracking down on, you know, opposition and so forth. But it seems that one of the things to come out of the, that conference was the increased concern with uh, transnational terrorism in Africa. What about the situation as we fight a global war on terrorism, is it, uh, you know, have we suddenly become uh, in a game of whack-a-mole where suddenly, um, you know, we're doing well against ISIS in Mosul, but uh, suddenly they're popping up now in in different areas of Africa. Um, what are you looking at on the global war on terrorism and, and our ability to uh, to fight what in essence is now uh, becoming almost a franchising situation. Well, I have two thoughts on that. Uh, first, okay. I don't have the numbers numbers right in front of me, mm -hmm. but we've seen uh, since 2001 um, an increase in the number of terrorist attacks by any measure mm -hmm. um, all around the glo globe. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, that's being driven by a number of factors. The reason that you know Africa has emerged as a hot spot for uh, Salafist jihadist uh, terrorism to grow mm -hmm. um, with groups like ISIS, and then I want to make very clear that's not the only group that's that's active mm -hmm. in, in West Africa, uh, right. other parts of Africa. Obviously, um, there's Boko Haram, which you know your listeners mm -hmm. should be familiar with, Al Shabaab in Somalia, but there are you know dozens more uh, smaller groups uh, and factions that are operating uh, in Africa as well. And I think that that speaks to the fact that 
a lot of the countries in Africa have the kind of situations that uh, terrorists are looking for. Um, if you think about the Middle East and where we have had significant problems with terrorism, it's been in very tribal societies where there's mm-hmm. tension between local areas, local governments, local traditional authorities, and a central government. Mm-hmm. In many cases, that tension has nothing to do with uh, religion. In, in fact, that, you know, is age old tensions in, in mm-hmm. so to speak, in some of these areas, um, Afghanistan, very tribal society, Somalia, tribal society, mm-hmm. Yemen, one of the most tribal of all the Arab countries. Um, also the case in, in Libya, and these are areas uh, that uh, terrorism has thrived, where groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda have been able to form uh, alliances uh, and to generate um, by playing off those tensions, by mm-hmm. making alliances with local authorities. I mean, that was very clear in the growth of Daesh in Syria and Iraq, where they were able to get Sunni tribes to pledge allegiance to them, um, you know, groups that were disaffected by Damascus or, or Baghdad. So that's mm-hmm. kind of the... MO for these groups is to find situations like that. And increasingly, they're looking at Africa where there are um, very similar conditions um, to kind of, you know, give this uh, their very tribalistic, you know, worldview um, an edge in terms of recruitment. What about uh, ISIS and Boko Haram? Is that a, are they, do they have an allegiance to each other or do they work with each other or are they totally separate groups that just play off each other? Well, I think that, I mean, Boko Haram really uh, has a different origin than uh, Daesh and ISIS. Uh, Mm -hmm. Boko Haram's, um, you know, the situation that led to the creation of Boko Haram really predates Um, Mm 9-11 and goes back to, you know, what I was speaking about earlier, uh, tribal politics and micro-ethnicities. I mean, most Mm -hmm. of Boko Haram's membership comes from the Kanuri ethnic group. Um, it's not the only uh, jihadist uh, terrorist organization currently active in Nigeria, but obviously it's the most famous uh, and sadly the most uh, successful as well. Um, so Boko Haram, you know, came out of a very local context in northeastern mm-hmm. uh, Nigeria, and as a result of that, doesn't have the sort of um, uh, millennial, um, you know, global, uh, you know, aspirations the way that uh, Daesh and Al Qaeda um, do. So that's one of the key differences in terms of them um, creating alliances. You know, Boko Haram actually goes back to the origins of it as effective organizations in 2002. Where they start to overlap is what happened in Libya. In 2011, we go into Libya, we overthrow Gaddafi, and this leads to, and this is something I've talked to with you know numerous members of African governments, a destabilization mm-hmm. of all the countries that border Libya. Um, and there's you know recent United Nations reports that suggest that you know there's weapons flow um, going to all these countries, and, and part of that does go from Libya. Uh, it's the hands of Boko Haram, and that's been going on uh, for years now. What about the expanding U.S. military role in Niger? And uh, with that whole situation, we had uh, last week Chuck Schumer and uh, Lindsey Graham, you know, saying they had no idea that we had a thousand troops in Niger. And uh, what about the situation? Any new information or any new theories on uh, what happened to the four Americans who were um, uh, killed in Niger uh, in October? Yes, uh, I think that as the U.S. footprint in um, the Sahel region, as that part of Africa has is known, has increased since 2011, mm-hmm. we've been very lucky that, uh, you know, as that footprint has, has grown, I think, uh, you know, in 2000, 
13, uh, there was a report that uh, we had about 200 troops in Niger. And then the last report that Trump submitted to Congress this summer is uh, 645. Uh, and that shows that great increase in that growth. And we've been very lucky um, that we have not had an attack like this, um, despite that growth. Before this incident, uh, I believe the, the bloodiest incident uh, involving U.S. forces in the Sahel um, is kind of a bizarre incident that happened in 2012 uh, when Obama uh, was president. Uh, there was, you know, again, really quickly, we had the civil war in Libya, 2011, Gaddafi mm -hmm. falls, and that destabilizes countries. Mali uh, had a coup, and then following that coup, uh, the Obama administration announced we would pull troops uh, out of Mali. But then there's this curious incident in which three U.S. Special Forces soldiers are killed in a car accident. Um, that reportedly there are also Moroccan prostitutes in the car at the time. Um, so we had these, you know, and that, again, this is a story that didn't receive much attention um, mm -hmm. because these are non-combat fatalities. Um, but this was definitely a combat incident that happened in Niger. And in, like you were saying, this has been a very quick uh, development. I've seen U.S. government documents from the Defense Department in 2011. Niger is not considered a priority country um, for the U.S. Uh, and that's definitely changed where we now have, you know, uh, the largest amount of troops in the, in the Sahel there. Um, that's part of the reason that's because of Niger's location. Um, you know, Boko Haram, ISIS, uh, Al-Qaeda. Niger is the only country in Africa, and in fact, if you want to say the only country in the world, mm -hmm. where all three groups have launched uh, attacks. And there's other terrorist groups that operate uh, in Niger as well. Um, it's a big country. Um, the central government is comparatively weak. Uh, there's, you know, great distances and, and poor infrastructure and strong tribal loyalties. It's the perfect kind of area for these uh, groups to to operate in, uh, and it's an area where, you know, smuggling, drug trafficking, and illegal weapons trade has flourished uh, following the, you know, beginning of the civil war in Libya in in 2011. Part of the reason there's such a U.S. troop presence there is. Uh, because other countries in Africa um, have uh, no interest uh, or traditionally have had no interest in, in hosting mm -hmm. uh, U.S. troops. But Niger, because of their situation, has been uh, more open to this. To give one example, in Nigeria, which is where Boko Haram obviously started, mm -hmm. um, we had a relationship with the previous president, uh, good luck Jonathan Taylor, um, and uh, we had U.S. trainers, uh, special forces trainers, helping the Nigerian forces. That relationship ended in 2014, um, and that was very much criticized. It, part, it was part of the reason that there's, there was a perception um, that uh, Good Luck Jonathan was not interested uh, in fighting Boko Haram and terrorism, mm -hmm. and that's part of the reason that, uh, he, you know, in the next election in Nigeria in 2015, uh, Muhammadu Buhari was elected president, a former military strongman um, who, you know, campaigned on, I'm the guy who can do something with Boko Haram. And he's mm -hmm. also, uh, and he has, he's been very successful. Boko Haram's on the back foot uh, in Nigeria, mm -hmm. and so he's been very successful. One of the things that's on the table is the return of U.S. Uh, this is reported by the New York Times that the return of U.S. Special Forces advisors to mm -hmm. Nigeria. But without access to Nigeria, Niger was probably the most important front in the struggle against Boko Haram. And I mentioned the other groups that are um, active there uh, as well. How important is the U.S.'s relationship with France in this particular battle? Yeah, I mean, you know, to talk a little bit more about uh, what happened in Tongo Tongo, uh, it's still very un unclear, and, and the French did play a, a very big role. Um, you know, there were reports that, uh, you know, the U.S. forces 
uh, around a dozen, along with a contingent of uh, Nigerian soldiers, had gone to this village to meet with uh, traditional um, authorities and, and elders. And uh, while they were there, basically half the group guarded the vehicles, which apparently were unarmored trucks, um, and the other half went to um, you know, speak with the, have the meetings with the elders. Um, and as soon as they arrive, I mean, you know, according to reports, there's this nice cinematic moment where these guys raced out of the village on, on motorcycles. And, you know, according to some reports, um, you know, U.S. and Nigerian forces felt that uh, they were being held there, you know, longer than it was necessary and got up to leave. And then as they're exiting the village, uh, they're ambushed uh, by a force of about 50, um, you know, who had Jeeps and other vehicles and RPGs. So comparatively much more heavier weapons uh, than what uh, U.S. special forces um, and uh, the Nigerian soldiers had at the time. Um, the nature of the U.S. mission to uh, Niger, um, it is an advise and assist mission, so you do not necessarily have U.S. forces um, who are deployed there uh, with heavy weaponry, with you know uh, close uh, air uh, combat assets, and that became mm -hmm. uh, an issue in the firefights uh, that developed because uh, there was no, while there was a U.S. drone that apparently uh, filmed the incident and there was, you know, uh, drones uh, in, in the area, there was no mm -hmm. close air support. Um, so we had, so at some point the uh, French were called in to try to provide uh, close air support um, because uh, the U.S. Nigerian force um, outside Tongo Tongo uh, was outgunned. One of the questions, and this incident is going to be heavily investigated, um, that I have um, that needs to look into is who called the French in the first place? Because mm -hmm. um, to go back to your question, uh, we have not uh, worked as closely as potentially we could be uh, with the French, uh, you know, encountering terrorism uh, in the Sahel. And that's partly because of the fact that uh, the two countries have different missions. The French mission is more focused on, you know, fighting these uh, terrorist groups directly, while the American mission is more about, you know, like I said, advise and assist uh, the, the governments um, in fighting those, those groups. So it's unclear from the available evidence if the United States called on the French, uh, if the Nigerian forces uh, called on the French, um, but that is something that, you know, uh, going forward needs to look, be looked into, whether mm -hmm. um, the United States will be able to find his own air assets uh, to support, you know, uh, these sort of uh, operations. If anything, you know, came up, this was supposedly, according to the press mm -hmm. reports, not supposed to be a a combat mission or patrol per se. Um, so that's definitely a question. And the French got the French Air Force, according to uh, reports, got there. But uh, the um, as they often do, the the group that was attacking the U.S. Uh, hugged um, American Nigerian forces so closely uh, that they could not deploy close air support. Uh, and instead, uh, the French uh, Air Force uh, performed high-speed maneuvers to intimidate um, the uh, attackers, and they broke off. Um, and I'm a little careful here, as you might notice, um, saying mm -hmm. attackers and not identifying the group. Um, mm -hmm. That's because no group has come forward to claim responsibility um, for what, as I've you know laid out, potentially is a great you know jihadist propaganda victory that mm -hmm. you know four U.S. special forces um, were were killed. So it's unclear. Uh, you know, I have my own suspicions about what group could be possible, but it's unclear um, at this time what group was responsible for this attack. Joseph, um, you're pretty much wired into that region as much as anybody, and. You know, you've you've done some phenomenal investigative reporting out of there. What do you think 
what's coming next? What's co- is that going to be the flashpoint? Is Africa our next flashpoint where uh, we're going to find terrorism is is going to uh, flourish? Uh, I think that uh, I think that you know Africa is definitely a region of the world which has seen increased uh, attacks from terrorism. Mm-hmm. Seen this uh, expansion of uh, terrorist groups. I've mentioned some of them in you know these countries that often have uh, poor governance um, and are like I've you know suggested before right for these conditions. Now, it's, what's interesting is in Africa is this is a region of the world where we have allies that are very much concerned about these issues and that's not often the case uh mm-hmm. when we look at other you know terrorist uh, uh regions of the regions excuse me regions of the world that have significant uh, problems with terrorism but in africa mm-hmm. we have allies that are willing to help us uh in nato for example there's a uh, southern caucus for lack of mm-hmm. a better term that includes portugal spain italy and france and these are all countries that are very concerned about uh, the emerging terrorism threat in africa and we you know france um, as I've you know discussed, uh, is very active in Mali, very active in these supporting support these regions. Um, you know, as is you know Portugal. I was in Portugal a couple months ago. They've just sent mm-hmm. a contingent of special forces to the Central African Republic. Um, and this is also interesting, you know, briefly in the context of discussion we have a lot in the United States since the presidential campaign about two mm-hmm. percent of GDP for NATO members. You know, you know, there's a big push. Um, you know. To, that all NATO members should pay 2% of GDP. And I certainly agree that, you know, under the mm-hmm. terms of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, all members should spend 2% of their GDP for defense purposes. However, you know, Italy is a great example of a country that's paying nowhere near uh, 2% of its GDP, but has developed the kind of capacity that's very useful um, for the alliance and for the United States, frankly, in countering mm-hmm. uh, terrorism because it has an expeditionary um, capacity. So, um, you know, this is a this is, I think, a, a region of the world where we can work closely with our allies um, and, you know, improve the stability of an area that is, you know, like you said, is increasingly uh, an important front in this, the struggle against uh, terrorism. Um, and I think that, you know, the Tongo Tongo incident has, has really put the spotlight uh, on on that. Uh, what are some of the other things you're working on and how can we find you on social media, Joseph? Uh um, yes, I'm working on that story, and uh, I'm working on a number of stories uh, about security uh, in Africa because there's definitely a spotlight right now uh, mm-hmm. on those issues, unfortunately, because of what happened uh, in Niger, um, and uh, that's something I'm working on. My social media is uh, my Twitter account, at uh, the Joseph H. Uh, it's the best way to uh, get in touch with me. Outstanding. And that's where we will get people. We'll link it in our show box below so that people can follow you on Twitter and uh, read your outstanding work. As always, Joseph, it's a pleasure to have you. Thank you very much. Well, that brings to a close yet another edition of the Politically Incorrect Podcast. Now, if you've not yet subscribed to us, it's easy to do. We are free. Get us on the iTunes store, Blog Talk Radio. We are proud to be part of the fine family of podcasts on Stitcher. We're part of the outstanding TuneIn app where myself and over 125 million people listen to music, sports, and podcasts. Just search Politically Incorrect Podcast on TuneIn, hit the favorite button, and each week you'll get the Politically Incorrect Podcast sent to your phone or tablet. Now, many thanks to our good friend, 
the outstanding journalist Joseph Hammett. He's an investigative reporter for the American Media Institute. You can follow him on Twitter at the Joseph H. That's the Joseph H. And you can read his work in the pages of U.S. News and World Report, The Defense Daily, as well as many other fine publications. Now, next week, we'll be checking in on how California's wine country is overcoming the post-wildfire rebuilding, plus, of course, the latest news from Washington. So, until then, I'm Jim Williams for the Politically Incorrect Podcast, wishing you a great weekend. Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.